Well, next week, we're going to have a special speaker with us, uh, Dr. Anthony Silvestro, who's actually, he's a dentist, retired dentist, but he speaks on behalf of the um, Institute of Creation, um, or actually Genesis, I think, Genesis Project or something like that, but he's a apologist, and he's been here before, and he's going to speak on the subject of what the Bible has to say about the justice movement and the gender identity movement. So it should be very interesting morning, and I pray you'll be able to make it out. And then his wife, his family is going to be here with us, and so he'll be bringing the word next week, uh, Sunday. And so we want to look forward to that. Um, also, uh, just continue to pray for my wife. She's not feeling well. She's got a cold. She's up in Idaho. She was supposed to fly back yesterday, but... Obviously, I canceled the flight, and so she, she's still there. And so she's going to hopefully come back on Wednesday. And I think uh, several people in our church are feeling 100%, and so we just want to pray that we would continue to uh, just uh, heal up. And uh, So this morning, we're going to be back in uh, 1 Thessalonians. We're starting chapter 5 today. Chapter 5, I want to thank Rudy and Ken for filling in last week. They did a great job, and for the team that helped out, just appreciate their hearts. And uh, I told Ken I didn't even know he was sick last week from the video. He looked pretty good on there, but he said he wasn't feeling well the whole time. So <laughs> continue to pray for him and Shelly as they recover as well. But uh, this morning we're in Chapter 5 of First Thessalonians. We start Chapter 5, and last week, couple weeks, several weeks, we've been looking at the difference between the, the rapture or the snatching up of the church and the second coming of Christ. And you can't confuse those two. They're two different things. And uh, we started, we looked at the, the different pillars of the rapture and, and we talked about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the revelation of Christ. In other words, this was something when he was speaking of the rapture in chapter 4, he said, this is a mystery so it was something no one ever heard of before. This was new revelation to the Apostle Paul that he had shared with the Thessalonians. And so you could see they were a little confused by all this because they didn't know exactly how it was all going to play out. It's like the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. They didn't really understand the church age at all. The idea that Jew and Gentile would be in the same body together worshiping was just something foreign to them. But uh, the rapture is very much the same thing, or the catching away of the church. And um, we saw the participants of the rapture. It says there in verse 15 of chapter 4, We who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so we talked of two different groups there, those who are alive and those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ, it says, will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Uh, the rapture is when the Lord comes back in the clouds. He doesn't touch his foot on the earth as he does in the second coming. And so he, he calls us to the clouds to him as the church, as all those who are elect in Christ. And we are waiting for that last person who is elect to come to Christ. And I think as soon as that happens, we're going to be out of here probably. And I uh, can't wait. So it'd be good. So get to work. You've got to evangelize everybody. Get them done. <laughs> so, but uh, we also, at the end there, I just wanted to emphasize verse 18 before we look at, at the first three verses of chapter 5. 
He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And that is one of the strongest evidences, I believe, that the church will be taking, taken away out off the earth before the tribulation begins. Um, because that, it wouldn't be too comforting if you knew you were going to be here for seven years of God's wrath being poured out on an unbelieving world. Uh, nowhere in Scripture are we, as believers, to endure the wrath of God ever or his judgment because it was all paid for on Calvary. So I think that's a very strong evidence of a pre-tribulational rapture, and we've talked about that, and we don't want to go into all that again, but I think that Paul's words there were very encouraging to them, and he's writing this as a pastor. He's writing this not as necessarily a theologian, however he is, but he didn't get into all the theological weeds when he's explaining this to them. He just kind of shares it with them because he loved them and he cared for them, and he knew that they had lost uh, loved ones, they had, they had died in the Lord, and they were, had questions. Did they miss the day of the Lord? What's going to happen? Did they miss the rapture? What's going to happen? And so he was sharing as their pastor in ways that were comforting to them. And so he taught them extremely well, as we're going to find out today concerning this. But today we're just going to look at the introduction to this passage. And I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word. We're just going to read three verses today. But First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, Paul writes there, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you, do not, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, woman, and they will not escape. Father, we ask you to bless these words to our heart this morning as we look at this first verse together. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. People have always asked throughout life several questions, but two of the most similar questions that people ask are, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? And secondly, what happens when we die? What happens when we die? And there are a lot of different philosophies out there. There's a lot of different views concerning history, the history of the world. And there's, there's, there's three I want to share with you there listed in your outline. The first one is the cyclical view. The cyclical view. And, and this sees history as kind of an endless circle, something that's just spinning around, spiraling back and forth. It's the same thing over and over and over again. This is what the wisest man who ever lived wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. The preacher, he says, That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. You just keep on running around on the same little gerbil wheel over and over and over again. This is a very popular view for a lot of people. This was a view held by the ancient Greeks back in Paul's day. And it, today it would characterize a lot of the Eastern thought. A lot of people who believe in reincarnation, right? It's the same thing. Oh, you just come back as something else. Hinduism, all those. It's a cycle of death and rebirth over and over again. There's no real purpose in it. A lot of this comes from the New Age movement, and it's become very, very popular in the West to believe things like this. You know, you hear words like karma and all this stuff. And, and all this is part of this cyclical view. But it really, 
takes any purpose or meaning from history. It, it kind of sucks the purpose and meaning right out of history. Um, one, one individual, John Marsh, said this, If such a view be true, uh, be true, then historical existence has been deprived of its significance. What I do now, I have done in, previous, in a previous world cycle, and will do again in the future world cycles. Responsibility and decision disappear, and with them, any real significance to historical life, which in fact becomes a rather grandiose natural cycle. Just as corn is sown, grows, and ripens each year, so the events of history recur time after time. Moreover, he writes, he says, if all that can happen in the constant repetition of an event cycle, there is no possibility of meaning in the cycle itself. It achieves nothing in itself. Neither can it contribute to anything outside itself. The events of history are devoid of significance. Now, we don't believe that, but that's what people believe who hold this cyclical view. Everything's just going round and round and round. Well, there's another view there, and I call, it's called the atheistic naturalistic view. And unlike the, the cyclical view, it's more linear. It's non-repetitive. It has a beginning. But like the cyclical view, uh, it has no meaning to history. Uh, basically, it believes that history is, is proceeding in a straight line instead of going in circles. It doesn't lead anywhere. You don't learn anything from history. It has no goal or purpose. We see that today in our society, don't we? We see people tearing down things that have to do with the history of our country, the history even of the world. ISIS did this when they went, ravaged communities over there. They would tear down statues. They would tear down structures that had any kind of ties to history because they were trying to rewrite history. And that's what happens today. There's this atheistic, naturalistic mentality that, you know what, you just keep on plugging along. Richard Dawkins said this, evolution has no long-term goal. There's no long-term target, no final perfection to serve as a criterion for selection. Although human vanity cherishes the absurd notion that our species is the final goal of evolution. So even... In their evolutionary thought, they thought, well, there's no real purpose in this. And so it's just one phase of this meaningless flow of history out of the evolution to the next. And it's, it's kind of sad. It's, it's a very hopeless, it's a very purposeless, empty view of history. And that's not what the Bible calls us to. Because there's a third view called the biblical view. And this view, the Bible, reveals that history is to be the outworking of God's sovereign purpose and plan of the creator God. That's what history is, right? We hear it, we hear it called his story, right? Everything we do is, is focused around the birth and life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Job said this in Job 42 Verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things, speaking of God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. See, the world doesn't believe that. The world doesn't believe there is a God. So they believe they can do whatever they want. 
Or in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, God declares this, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We look at the world today and we look around us and we think, wow, things are out of control. God must have lost control. No. Things are proceeding on God's timeline in exactly the the right way, the way he wants it to, according to his purpose, as hard as it may be to endure. (laughs) This is happening because God is allowing it to happen. Or in Isaiah 43, verse 13, the Lord says, I act and who can reverse it? See, there's a wonderful freedom in believing that God is a sovereign creator God. That we are not in charge of our own destiny. We're not the captain of our own destiny. Don't believe that lie. Believe what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ is the central figure in all of history. Everything focuses in the word of God around the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to his coming. The New Testament describes, it it expounds on his life, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. And this is what we're going to look at in the next several weeks together. Because as history continues to unfold itself, day after day, hour after hour, it's unfolding the eternally planned purposes of our sovereign God. And there's one huge event in the room. On the horizon, and that's the day of the Lord, as Scripture calls it, the day of the Lord. This is not the rapture of the church. This is the day of the Lord. And this is an event that will mark the end of man's rule on earth. Right now, basically, they are running the world. Satan and all his minions and all the worldly philosophies. But on this day, God will act in judgment to take back direct control of the earth from those who have usurped it it from him, both human and demonic. And so this is something that is on God's timeline. This will happen just as sure as we're sitting here this morning. It will happen. It will be an unprecedented time of cataclysmic judgment on all unrepentant sinners here on earth. And a lot of churches, a lot of preachers won't preach on this because it's not very positive. It's not really uh, affirming or comforting, but in a weird way it is because we know God is in control. And so we need to take some time and to remind ourselves that yes, God is loving, God offers forgiveness to all who would turn to Christ in repentance from their sins. But God is also wrathful. God is also vengeful. God is also a God of judgment, and that judgment will not be spared. And to ignore such a truth is really, as a a teacher of the word of God, is not to, to, to fulfill teaching the whole counsel of God. And so we have to go through this portion of Scripture. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And so when you look at scripture, scripture repeatedly over and over and over again warns of God's pending judgment. And he warns of the eternal judgment 
of all those who have failed to put their faith or trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If you're here this morning and you have yet to put your faith and your trust in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to do that even now. What are you waiting for? Time is of the essence. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at our world and to look at the Bible and go, wow, it looks like things are playing out the way God says they're going to play out. Read Romans 1. It's like reading the newspaper. It's very important to realize that this is not something that we know when it will happen. We don't know when the Lord will return for his church. We don't know when the Lord will return physically to earth. We don't know that. But as far as the the rapture of the church goes, as far as being caught up with him in the clouds, that could happen at any moment. There's nothing that has to happen before this next event takes place. But what Paul does is after he shares that truth with them in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he begins to move on and he begins to talk about the day of the Lord. And this is referring to not God sparing his church from judgment, not saving them from the tribulation, but actually carrying out judgment, allowing his wrath to be laid out on an unbelieving world. Um, you know, we don't like to address this a lot of times because it's, it's hard to talk about. But judgment was a major emphasis in both the Old Testament, with the Old Testament prophets, and with the New Testament apostles. And not only that, but Jesus himself spoke about judgment quite a bit, if you read his words. And I think we all need to follow Paul's example and follow Christ's example and teach on judgment. And so Paul was faithful to preach the day of the Lord. And when we speak of the day of the Lord, we're talking about a day of judgment. This isn't a a, a day of blessing. It's a day of judgment. It's not the rapture. The rapture is sparing us from that. And so when we we think about this, um, Paul was faithful to tell those in Thessalonica all about this this pending day, this day of the Lord. And even though he wasn't there a very long time with them, he was there probably maybe at the most a couple months. Uh, He heard from Timothy. They had some concerns, and they had some people that had passed away, and they thought, well, boy, what's going to happen with them? And so he goes through this whole thing in chapter 4, which we've been through, and then he switches gears in chapter 5, and he begins to preach about the day of the Lord. And he was faithful to do that. You know, sometimes it's, it's hard when you're with someone just for a short period of time to share hard information with them, right? I mean, if you have to rebuke your children, it's hard to do it when you have a week of Christmas vacation, right? And you're only going to see them a week, and you've got you to rebuke them somehow. But, boy, you know, it's, it's, it's tough when you're visiting people or whatever it might be to do it in a short period of time. Here Paul was with them only a, a short period of time, but he heard certain things, and he thought, you know what? Um, I need to remind them that I taught them all of these things. And so he spent a vast amount of time teaching on what we call eschatology, the end times with these folks. Because he thought it was essential. And uh, he, he was very, very adamant about that. He warned everyone about the day of the Lord. His ministry was primarily to preach the gospel, right? And we can't get away from 
preaching judgment when we preach the gospel. The problem today is we have the gospel message doesn't contain any judgment. The gospel message only contains good news. Hey, I got some good news for you. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Would you like to follow him? Well, sure. Okay, pray this prayer. Amen. You're out. Welcome to the family. Let's move on. That's not the gospel. The gospel very clearly calls upon us to to feel a sorrow in our hearts for our sin. And when Paul preached the gospel, the only way you're going to feel sorrow in your heart for your sin is to understand that you have done wrong before a holy God. And as a result of doing wrong before a holy God, you're not going to invoke his blessing. You're going to invoke his what? His judgment, his wrath. I mean, think about it. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are under God's hand of judgment and wrath. And if you do not repent of your sins and come to Christ and acknowledge his work on Calvary as payment for your sins and your willingness to follow him with your life, guess what? You will spend all eternity under the hand of God's judgment. You know, everybody says, well, when I go to hell, it won't matter because God won't be there. Yes, he will. He will be there in the form of his wrath, in the form of his judgment, not the form of his love. Now we live in a day and age of grace. God extends his hand to us and he says, hey, come to me, all ye who are weary, right? I mean, take, take my yoke upon you. It's lighter than yours. Stop carrying around this burden of sin that you have. Trust in Christ. And when Paul would share the gospel, he always shared the impending judgment of God. Because it's inevitable. He does so throughout the scriptures, even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. See, he he never let out the aspect of God's wrath. Or in chapter 2, verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Wrath was something that Paul brought up frequently. Judgment was something that he brought up frequently. Or in chapter 4, verse 6, we said, let, it says there, let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul thought this was such important that he, he continually reminded these people that God is a God of wrath. He's a God of judgment. Or in verse 9 of chapter 5, He points out to us, for God has not destined us, believers, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. So we are not destined to the wrath. We're not destined to forego God's wrath during the tribulation. He's going to spare us from that. Or even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, this goes into it even deeper. He says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, 
that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay the affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, it says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What a strong passage to realize that people are in this state even today who are under the hand, the wrathful hand of God. And so Paul had preached this sobering truth about the day of the Lord to the Thessalonians over and over during his brief stay there. And that's why he says there in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, do you not remember that I was with, still with you when I told you these things? So he, Paul doesn't want them to forget this subject matter. And after he left, apparently they had questions in their mind, and Timothy conveyed those questions to Paul in the letter that he, he got back from that. And Paul wrote a letter, and, and, and this is what we're studying. But in verse, verse 9 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, he tells us that they turned from God, turned to God from the idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. He told them they were to wait for the Son of God. That's what we're doing now. That's the next thing on God's event list is the rapture of the church. And we saw that when we went through chapter 4. This is not the Lord coming to earth to judge the earth. It's the Lord coming to earth to save his church from his pending judgment. That event was mentioned in John 14. 1 Corinthians 15, and in our passage last several weeks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's no judgment in the rapture. That's taking the church away from God's judgment. And so now we come to this day of the Lord in chapter 5, and you can see the transition here in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, Paul always when he's making a transition, he'll use that word in the original language, now concerning. It's like, okay, I'm going to talk about something else now. I was talking about the rapture, but now I'm going to talk about something else that's not the rapture. It's called the day of the Lord. It's the day of God's judgment. It's the coming day of the Lord. It's a transitional phrase, and he uses it frequently. We've gone from the comfort that comes to believers because they're taken away. They're caught up to be with the Lord. And then the seven-year tribulation starts. We're not part of that. But now we transition to the discomfort that ought to come to unbelievers who are faced with this reality. 
that they will face God's judgment. This is the final wrath. This is where history is leading to. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. The Lord began with history, with at least here on earth, with Adam and Eve in the garden. He created them. He's in control of history, but it has a termination point. Right now, it's under man's control. Human beings think they have everything under their control. They think it's okay. They don't need God. They're trying to suppress God. They're trying to suppress God's truth. They're smarter than God. They don't believe that there is a God. And this is man's day. And he's led by the the prince of darkness, Satan himself. But soon there's going to come an end to this day. There's going to come an end to men's day, man's day, and there's going to be the beginning of the Lord's day, the day of judgment, the coming of the day of the Lord. And the apostle used this phrase when he says now concerning a lot of times when he started changing subjects. He used it before uh, in our uh, passage in chapter 4 and verse 9, now concerning brotherly love. He's changing subjects. And you notice here he says brothers, He uses the term brothers there. He's addressing them in a kind of an affectionate way because he's going to share some hard information with them. You know, it's like when someone pulls you close and says, hey, you know I love you, but you know what's coming, right? You know know I love you, but then they're going to, something critical is going to come out of their mouth. Um, And this is what Paul is doing here. He's suggesting this new subject matter, and he's beginning to, transition his thoughts into this judgment, this day of judgment. And so he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. The times and the seasons. This is interesting because in the original language, these are two different words with two different meanings. Um, When he says the the times, chronos is the, the Greek word there. It refers to chronological time, like a clock on the wall, or a watch, or a calendar. That's what he's referring to. And so, when he's speaking of times and the seasons, or epochs, some translations say, that's a different word. Seasons is a different word. It's the word karyas, and it refers to a general sense of a period of, of time. It's kind of an event that's happening, is the, the thinking. And so you could kind of say that he's introducing this day of the Lord as one event, but with many times and many events within the, the perimeters of the day of the Lord. You know, the, a lot of times people will think, well, the day of the Lord, that's just one day in history. No, it's not, actually. That's why he's using these two terms, and they're both plural. There's going to be many times and there's going to be many events that compose this structure called the day of the Lord. It's not just one great event. There's many events that, that make up this event. And so when we look at history and we look at what the next event is, well, we already discussed that. It's the rapture of the church. Well, what happens after that? Well, the next event would be what? The tribulation. Seven years of God pouring out his judgment here on earth. 
the first three and a half years, and then the second three and a half years will be known as the Great Tribulation. Everything's kind of notched up a little bit. There's going to be the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet described in the book of Revelation. There's going to be the salvation of Israel also talked about in the book of Revelation. People say, well, do you think Israel really matters today? Yes, most definitely. If you want to watch what God is doing in the world, watch Israel. Don't believe the lie that the church replaced Israel. We don't believe that. The scripture doesn't teach that. Israel is still God's chosen people, and they will endure. They will be saved in the end. There will be salvation of Israel. So salvation of Israel is a very important subject matter because many of the the nations of the world today have turned a blind eye to Israel. They say it doesn't matter. You know, let let the Arabs overrun them. It doesn't matter. We we have the church now. And you you look country by country, countries that have turned their their back on Israel, and uh, it's not places you'd probably want to live today. So there will be a great time of tribulation here on earth. Uh, There will also be sealed judgments that are broken out in in Revelation chapter 6. It talks of this. uh, And out of the seventh seal will come the trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments. And all this kind of unfolds here on earth. All these judgments are described as epics. There are different events that are happening. And all that is making up the day of the Lord. And ultimately, there will also be the return of Christ physically when he comes back to earth. Not just to catch us away, but when we come back with him, the Bible says, in our glorified state, we'll come back with him. And then he will rule and reign here on earth for a thousand years. It sounds like a fairy tale, but it will be true. It will actually happen. And when Christ comes back, there will be a battle of Armageddon. will take place centered in the country of Israel. There will be the sheep and the goats judgment described by the Lord. There will be the binding of Satan and his demons for the duration of the millennium. And then there will be released for a short time at the end of that thousand year reign for a final rebellion. And then there will be destruction of that rebellion. Um, there will be a, the great white throne judgment after the millennial kingdom and there will be the final dispatch of Satan and his angels and all unbelievers to the lake of fire. All those come under the heading of the day of the Lord. All those events that we read about throughout scripture. And the question in our minds and it was even in the disciples' minds is okay Lord, well when is this going to happen? <laughs> Can you give me a little heads up? How long do we have to wait? I mean, think about the disciples. They were sitting with Jesus looking at the city of Jerusalem before he was crucified, looking over from the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount, and Jesus said, you know what? All this is going to be destroyed. The whole thing is coming down. Not one rock will be left upon another. And in response to that, his disciples privately asked him, tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming, Lord? What will be the sign of the end of the age? I mean, we always want to know when. When? 
Remember when you were little and you went on a trip? When are we going to get there, Dad? When are we going to get there? Every five minutes. When are, you going to, are we there yet? We want to know. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to this event in history. What do we look for? In Acts chapter 1, in verse 6, they said, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time, Lord? He continues. to ask, They continue to ask these questions. They get preoccupied with when this is going to happen. And so Paul says in verse 1, you know what? Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you about this. What's he saying? He's saying, I've taught you everything I can teach you about this. And, and all these things are going to happen, and they're going to happen, be happening according to God's timeline, not your own. So be patient with the process. And they wanted to know all these things. When are they going to happen? And he said, you know what? I've shared all this information with you when I was there. And he knew that he wanted to comfort them, so that's why he informed them by the revelation of the Lord, really, about the rapture of the church, that they're not going to be here for all this horrible judgment and wrath that's going to be poured out on the earth for these seven years. They're going to be taken up. And so he says, I, I don't have anything really to write to you about this. Um, and I think really what he's saying is, stop looking at the clock and look at your own life. That's what he wants them to see. That's the application here. I mean, the application is really being spiritually prepared, right, for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And being spiritually prepared for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ does not involve setting a date. It's irrelevant. To know when the day of the Lord would come, will come could foster spiritual indifference. It's kind of like when you're a teenager and you got left home for the first time by yourselves with your friends at the house. Mom and Dad, when are you coming home? Right? Well, what can we do till they get home, right? Because you want to know exactly when they're coming home. So you get the place cleaned up if you had a party, if you did whatever. Got into something you weren't supposed to get into. You wanted to make sure it was all back in order before they got home. But any smart parent never tells their children the truth in that situation, right? We'll be home when we get home. You're not going to give them a time and a date. And so... If we did have a time and a date, I think that we would grow spiritually indifferent. We would say, ah, you know what? It's not going to happen for another five years. We got time to spare. But guess what? The Lord says, you know what? You don't know when it's going to happen. And I'm not going to tell you. So you better be ready to go. You know, sometimes as a chaplain, you get called out. And sometimes you get called out at odd hours and things like that. So they trained us to have kind of what they call like a go bag, a thing that you have a little bag and you have all your stuff in there. If you have business cards you need to take or whatever, it's all right there. You just grab that bag and you go. You don't have to sit there and pack and, and figure out, oh, do I have this? Do I have that? And it's important to realize that, you know what? We need to have our go bags ready because the Lord could come back at any time. We want to be found 
being faithful, serving him in a way that would be pleasing to him, not looking at a date on a calendar trying to figure out, oh, well, when is it actually going to happen? And so God has chosen not to reveal this specific time of these end time events. And he, he wants us to constantly be anticipating his return. That's really what he desires of us. And so he says, you know what? I'm not going to tell you. I don't have any need to do that concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. You have no need to have anything written to you. So look at verse 2. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware. This, once again, dials down on the fact that he must have taught them very well. You are fully aware that the day of the Lord, the, the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That, that word there, fully aware, describes careful, accurate, painstaking research. See, the Thessalonians knew that the, the day of the Lord was certain and that it would arrive unexpectedly. And there would, it's not going to announce itself. I mean, no, no, nobody who's going to rob your house at night would call you ahead of time and say, hey, by the way, I'm, out, I'm outside and I'm going to come in and rob your house. So make sure you leave everything on the floor there and you know, open the safe for me. And, and, and uh, I'd really appreciate that if you did that. No, that's not what a thief would do. A thief would sneak in unknowingly and take what they want. Well, here it says the Lord's coming. It's not saying the Lord is a thief, but the Lord's coming is like a thief in the night. It's going to be unannounced. And yet, at the same time, you read throughout Scripture lots of different um, descriptions of what things will happen before this day comes. And some people have a hard time with that. They say, well, wait, the Bible tells us what will happen before all this comes. So how is it like a thief in the night? And we'll get into that next time, but it's important to realize that, you know what, we have to be ready for this day. We have to be ready for this day. Because all these things that are going to play out, all these times, all these seasons, are going to play out before our eyes. You don't want to be here during that time. And the day of the Lord is, is, is different from the rapture. It's different even from what the Bible calls the day of Christ or the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those terms refer to a time when believers will receive the rewards, the day of Christ and all that. That's not talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is where God unleashes his wrath, his judgment here on this earth. Ultimately, to the point where the whole heavens and earth will be, what? Dissolved. This will not be here any longer. God will recreate a new heaven and a new earth for us to enjoy for all eternity with him in all eternity. And so he wants us to be aware of this. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then verse 3, 
while people are saying there is peace and security. Isn't that interesting? There is peace and security. This is what will, will happen. Well, who's going to be saying this? Well, a lot of the false teachers that will arise. A lot of the people who are not teaching the truth. Notice there in verse 2, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware. And then in verse 3, he says, While people are saying, Well, who are these people? What is their authority to say these things? And I think the only explanation for such a a ridiculous response is that people are going to be deceived by false prophets. The Bible says many false prophets will arise. And so even though all this traumatic stuff is going to be going on on earth, people are still going to harden their hearts to the Lord. It's hard to believe that. It'd be like if the rapture happened now and you were left here. Hopefully you would at least wonder, wow, I guess all this stuff was true. I better get right with the Lord. And yet, in this day, people will turn their back on God, and many false prophets will rise and will mislead many. Matthew 24, 5, 11, 24 tells us that. For false, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders to be misled, if possible, even the elect. It's not saying the elect can be misled, but it's saying if possible, which is not, but that's how bad the misdirection is going to be. And so we need to be ready for these, these times that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. And, and Paul wants them to know as a pastor that, you know what, thank God that you have put your faith, your trust in Christ. Thank God that you are trusting in the Savior for the forgiveness of your sins that you no longer have to endure God's wrath or his vengeance or his judgment because the Lord will return and the Lord will catch us up to be with him and will forever be with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so I think that you know when we begin to read ahead and even when we get into the book of 2 Thessalonians, it's going to continue this theme of judgment. And I think we just need to be reminded you know what? God has a purpose. He has a plan. We're not just some floating uh, boat out in the waves of history and there's no, no purpose to life. God has a purpose for us all being here today. even. And I just pray that the Lord would continue to work in each one of our lives in a way that, that he is exalted, he is glorified. And so, Father, we just pray this morning that, Lord, as we look forward to you returning for your church, Lord, as we just introduce this day of the Lord concept today, Father, I pray that we would not be afraid of your judgment because we are in Christ. We are protected divinely from your wrath because Jesus bore the wrath that was due to us on Calvary. And so, Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for the salvation that you have availed to us. And, Lord, we do pray that you would do your work in our lives. Help us to remember to continue to share the gospel 
with those around us to continue to pray for those in need. And Father, that we would see you do a mighty work in and through us as a church. Lord, we pray that you would draw people to this source of truth. Father, that you would bring people who want to hear more about your word and about you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's anyone here today or listening via the live stream, Lord, who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I encourage them, I implore them. Lord, I pray that they would do that today. Don't wait another second. If you know you're a sinner, the Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all failed in some way. We've all come short. We can't save ourselves. We can only trust in the forgiveness and grace that we know to be true in Christ Jesus. That we can put our faith and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary and that our sins will be forgiven us and that we can be assured to be in heaven one day and we don't have to fear the coming day of the Lord. I pray that all would put their faith or trust in Christ. And Lord, as believers, I pray that we would never forget, that we would never cease to proclaim your glorious truth. In the work environment, in our families, in our neighborhoods, Lord, that we would live and share the life-giving message of Jesus Christ to those who have yet to hear. And we pray that many would come to Christ. And Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. We pray that you would bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. And uh, bless the food to our bodies. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's stand together and we'll close.